The, the model that I designed, it is designed specifically for faith communities that are predominantly people of color, but there are large portions of it that certainly apply to faith communities that are not predominantly communities of color. Um, and really the heart and soul of this is, is it comes from a place of after doing, you know, 25, almost 30 years of, of frontline work in racial justice and racial healing um, from a faith-based perspective or faith-rooted perspective, um, just seeing the potential and really what I believe is God's design for beloved community to be a place that we heal and we mend. Um, and, and sadly, in so many cases, even with the best of intentions, Faith communities are not that. We are often not that. And especially when it comes to racial trauma, oftentimes we are deepening racial trauma and we don't realize it. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Communitas podcast. I am here with co-host Joy Preston. And uh, today you're going to meet somebody you've met before on this podcast. Uh, we'll be speaking again with Gigi. And Gigi, your first episode with us was one of our most popular. People are listening to it uh, over and over again and have inquired about you. And so wow. I know that there were some great things we talked about in that prior podcast. If you've not listened to that one, I really encourage you to go back um, and listen to our first episode with Gigi. Uh, but we're going to follow up on some of that today. There might be some crossover to things we've talked about before, but um, but we'll go there again today. So, Gigi, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's such a treat. It's such a joy, uh, pun intended, Joy Preston. It is such a joy yeah, to thanks, be with you G. all. <laughs> and, and I think you know, people knew this from the, the first episode. Um, we have quite a history. We're old, old friends. Um and uh, yeah, it's just so cool that we've stayed connected and the work that you've done. But let's just get this out of the way. Since the last time you were on, you have finished your doctorate. So congratulations and tell us Yay, a little bit about that. Good for you. Yeah, give us some give us some details. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, man, it was uh an amazing journey. It, it was a lot, especially as, as a single yeah. mama oh, wow. uh, through a pandemic, mind you. Um, but when I tell you that it, even though it was a lot of work, it, it is part of what mm -hmm. got me through the pandemic for real. Um, uh, just the, the community and the, the work that it involved, but really, um, what drove me into doing a doctor doctoral program was, um, my passion to see faith communities become places yeah. of healing. Hmm. My particular emphasis in my doctorate yeah. was around racial healing from racial trauma, um, but it's not limited to racial trauma, though. Um, and so the, the title of my doctoral thesis is um, Radical Healing in Beloved Community, a model for healing the soul wound of intergenerational racial trauma hmm. in faith communities of color. Hmm. The, the model that I designed, it is designed specifically for faith communities that are predominantly people of color, but there are large portions of it that certainly apply to faith communities that are not predominantly communities of color. Um, and really the heart and soul of this 
is, is it comes from a place of after doing, you know, 25, almost 30 years of, of frontline work in racial justice and racial healing um, from a faith-based perspective or a faith-rooted perspective, um, just seeing the potential and really what I believe is God's design for beloved community mm. to be a place that we heal and we mend. Um, and, and sadly, in so many cases, even with the best of intentions, Faith communities are not that. Yeah. We are often not that. And especially when it comes to racial trauma, oftentimes we are deepening racial trauma and we don't realize it. Um, mm. And when I speak of racial trauma, um, it is often referred to only in the context of people of color, right? So I will say that the most pronounced racial trauma is certainly in communities of color. And I would argue most profoundly in the black American and indigenous communities, because those are the only two communities that have been intergenerationally enslaved. Mm-hmm. With that though, when we talk about white communities um, and we talk about race in particular, um, there has to be an element where we um, look further than just the behavior that's causing harm. What is driving the behavior, mm-hmm. right? And when we talk about what, what is driving the behavior, so um, we have to think intergenerationally. We cannot think with only what's in front of us. This has been going on for generation after generation after generation, the marginalizing, the exploiting, the sidelining, the silencing, the gaslighting of people of color, right? And when we talk about race, we're talking about a system of beliefs that was strategically assembled on purpose. Hmm. That is what we call race today. It was created by humans. It's why we call it a construct, right? Um, So Mm -hmm. if if we're talking about how do we uproot or how do we dismantle the system of racial hierarchy that this country was built on, um, we've got to do that in a way that is informed by what was its purpose to begin with. Hmm. Its Mm -hmm. purpose to begin with was power and control and wealth. Yeah. Those two things. So the 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 construct of weight race was created to justify enslaving African and indigenous bodies. Enslaving, right? Um which which sends the message the only reason these bodies exist is for our benefit. It's for us to build wealth. Right. That's the only reason they exist, right? Um and so if you go back even further, a lot of the white-bodied community who rocked up on U.S. shores um, before it was U.S., like 1492, Columbus and his folk, and the folk that came after that, a lot of them, some say even the majority of them, were in the lower echelons of society in Europe. So they came from the bottom, which means they experienced what it felt like to be marginalized, to be hated, to be silenced, to be dehumanized. Hmm. A lot of the ways that a lot of the brutality that they perpetrated on black and brown bodies in the United States had been perpetrated on them and their families. So in other words, many of them came to what became came to North America um, and came with deeply rooted intergenerational fear and terror. And and of course, what we know for a fact, like from the papal bull, right, from um, from the English Catholic Church was that the English Catholic Church gave a uh, basically an edict that you can go and conquer any peoples 
if they don't appear right. to be what we consider Christian. So, so go and conquer mm-hmm. them. They can be your property, right? Yep. Um, so they already had the justification. They already had the backing, right? But, but we're talking about people who both had the intent to dominate. They showed up with the intention to dominate and take over. And they also showed up with terror from their own intergenerational trauma. So now if you fast forward to today, 2023, we're talking about 400 years of white communities. It's not individuals. It's white collective communities who are perpetrating this brutality over and over and over. And that's, um, that actually, so there's something called perpetration induced traumatic stress. Explain. Perpetration induced traumatic stress. Yeah, so so that's coming from um, communities or or people who um, who are carrying trauma, not because they were victimized, but because they were the victimizer. So so let's give a real yeah. feet on the ground example. Yeah, let's go back to when lynching was happening frequently in this nation. You're talking mm-hmm. about churches would pause in the middle of church service to go attend with all their families, with small children even, and go attend as entertainment, lynchings in the town square or wherever nearby. Um, And they would make it a barbecue. They would make it fun. They would make postcards with very gruesome photographs. Mm. What did that do to the small children who witnessed that? Mm -hmm. Right? What The the best way that I, I like to explain it is for a human being, the only way that we could perpetrate that kind of brutality on other human beings is if a part of our soul has been shut off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the only way it's possible. Right. Um, and there are reasons why, right. There are reasons why. And I, when I say we, I'm, I'm saying we um, kind of the pervasive, we, as a people I'm including we who are white, we who are all of us. Um, mm-hmm. But we have reasons why we perpetrate those things. And the drive to dominate, the drive to be in power and control is in direct connection to the terror of losing mm-hmm. control. And that terror comes from generations ago um, of being terrified to lose your life. So that's why we find a lot of times, um, a lot of times, you know, us folk of color are like, how how can they fight that hard against something that seems so obvious, right? Basic levels of equity and equality. Um, and it's because they're fighting as if their life depends on it. Right. Right. That's right. They, they may not even know why. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, there is the intergenerational perpetration induced trauma that they have been a perpetrator. So a part of their soul has just been shut off so that they can brutalize other human beings. Right. Um, there's also the intergenerational trauma of they experienced it personally generations and generations ago. So if, if Mm -hmm. I'm not in control, someone can do that to me. Therefore I am going to grip this power and control and wealth as if my life depends on it. So when you try to talk to me about a Brown Jesus, or you try to talk to me about being quote unquote woke, or you try to talk to me about, um, race in America and how it's still alive and well, if I'm a white person, more often than not, my knee-jerk reaction is to fight against it as if my life depends on it. 
Mm-hmm. And in a very real, very real way today in, in, in present day today, their lives do depend on it in a sense because their lives revolve around those of us who are racialized as white in this country, our, our lives revolve around being in power and being in control. Mm-hmm. But there's a very real trauma piece to that too, that, that, um, and I don't mean trauma from being, um, well, in part, there's a piece being trauma from being victimized, but there's a large piece of being, of the trauma from being the perpetrator. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. if you've heard of Resma Menachem, he wrote the New York times bestselling book, my grandmother's hands. Yeah. Incredible book, incredible book, um, around healing racialized trauma. Um, the way that he explains it or one aspect of it is, A baby learns what is safe and what is not safe based on what or whom the parent either recoils from or opens up to. Yes. So whether that is pronounced by just looking at someone or not, a baby can feel it. So again, a real life example, um, a white mother and child are walking down the street and a white mother is carrying her baby in her arms and a black man walks past her in the other direction. The baby feels her body recoil, even if she doesn't realize she's doing it. Right. That Mm -hmm. baby has just learned that is not safe. And that's recorded in the body, in the physical body it's recorded. Mm -hmm. And then that baby grows up into, you know, there, there are many, many more experiences like that throughout childhood and adolescence. And they grow into an adult who, their internal sub usually subconscious reaction to a black man walking by is fear. Yeah. That comes from many generations and it comes from their own um, experience as a young child based on their parent, how their parent mm-hmm. either recoiled or opened. Yeah, that's right. It, it, this is, this is so timely for us. Um, this podcast has kind of had a little bit of a dive into trauma. Um, as of late, mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked with just Tony Daniels, which is a great episode. I encourage people to listen to, um, spoke a lot to this as well, not from a race perspective per se, but from a, a trauma perspective and how our brains get wired at a very young age as infants, um, right. you know, e- even through things that, that we tried to do that we thought were the best, most loving things like, yes. you know, let the baby cry it out. Don't comfort the baby, put it on a schedule. I mean, all those kinds of things that, you know, create. Um, in some ways, I think it helps to create that um, scarcity mindset, right? Yes. Like we have to fight for everything oh, because yeah. there, there's just not enough of everything to go around instead of the abundant mindset. And so, right. boy, so many things come to mind as as you speak through that. I mean, first one is um, we have the evidence of the horrifying pictures that were taken 50, 60, 80, 100 years ago during lynchings. Um, they're horrifying. And, and to see the children, you know, there in participation, um, examples of the postcards and posters that were made up. I mean, we we have we that we have that evidence. We can't deny it. It exists. We know that for sure. Yeah. Um, and and again, you know, those are forms of trauma. To see, Absolutely. To see a human being or an animal or any living thing be tortured. Uh, by right. definition is is trauma you know capital t trauma um so 
it's not surprising that we kind of do have this wired in us. The other thing to note here is, you know, sadly, this isn't a uniquely North America issue. Uh, Australia is another example, right, where um, the low caste of society gets sent away to, you know, this faraway country and indigenous people are just shamed and and used and enslaved. And yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. it's an unfortunate reality. And that's just two. I mean, there are dozens, hundreds of others. My goodness, go back and read the old Testament. This is not, this is not something new. <laughs> yeah. And you know, on, on that note, I mean, speaking of other countries, so I lived in, by the way, for those of you who are listening and did not hear the first episode, I am a Brown woman. I did not clarify that at the beginning. <laughs> Context. <laughs> yes, you are hearing from a brown woman. Um, I, when I say we, and I'm referring to white people, it's not because I'm confused about my brownness. <laughs> um, it's about it's because I am being very intentional about my language. That we are all part of the body of Christ. We are all part of humanity. Every one of us are image bearers. So I use the language of we, whether I'm talking about white, brown, black, indigenous, whatever, because we are a we. Right on. So this is a brown woman speaking. Um, I spent 10 years in South Africa, which is the second most racially polarized country in the world. Um, And so, yes, North America is certainly not the only one. Something else I want to mention, actually two other things I want to mention here. So there have been profound studies in epigenetics just in the last decade and and even more recent than 10 years um, that have confirmed that we know that trauma is passed down in the DNA for we know at least 14 generations. It could be more, but we know for sure at least 14 generations. Do you know 14 generations takes us past 400 years ago? Oh, yeah. Hmm. It takes us past 400 years ago, which is when 1619, right? The first ship with enslaved beautiful bodies showed up. Um, So all of that trauma is still living in our bodies. Um, the, the enslaved and the enslavers, um, the beautiful thing is it's healable. It's changeable. Um, Mm. and, and I want to highlight here, there are things about the incarnation that are imperative that we reframe and rethink if we actually want to bring change, those of us who are Christ followers, God not only chose to put God's self in a human body. I mean, that by itself is mind-blowing when you really think about that, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that God put himself in the confines and the limitations and the vulnerabilities and the frailties of a human body who needs sleep, who needs food, who needs to use the bathroom every day, who need right? God didn't need any of that <laughs> yeah. stuff in heaven, but, but on earth he did. He showed up as a baby who had to be changed, you know? But it's not just that he showed up in humanity. He showed up as a brown, colonized Jewish Palestine, Palestinian. What what we would call today Palestinian, but a colonized brown man. And there are legit arguments that suggest he would he would have been if he was living today, he'd be racialized as black. And there's there's reasons for that. I won't go into it. But at the very least, we know for sure. Homie wasn't white. Yeah, (laughs) he wasn't white. He was a brother. He was brown. At the very least, he was brown. And we know, you know, Revelation describes his hair as lamb's wool, right? So God put God's self in a human body of a brown, colonized, poor, 
falsely accused, imprisoned, executed by the state man. Yep. Which also means as a Jewish man, God put God's self in a physical body that had hundreds of years of intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. God chose that. You want to talk about solidarity? My God. And that's the model that God has given us to to live out Genesis 1 on this planet. Genesis 1, which declares we are all made in God's image. No one group of people has cornered the market on Imago Dei. Mm -hmm. We all bear his image, right? The verb, I mean, the the Hebrew verb in Genesis 1, rada, that we were made to exercise dominion. We were made to be able to exercise influence. Some people call it leadership. Some people call it stewardship, that Hebrew word. Um, But we were made to exercise dominion. Not some of us, not just the white people, not just the men, not just the heteronormative people. Look, I'm pushing buttons now. Mm -hmm. Every single human (laughs) being was made to, in God's image, to exercise dominion. And if we have, if our intention is to embody that and live it out in the world, to live that in the flesh, we have got to rethink the incarnation in terms of solidarity. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. I, I'm still, I'm still blown away by the image that there's uh, not indoor plumbing in heaven. So I have to get beyond that. But, um, <laughs> right? Gee, your insights, your insights are so cool. I, 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 a couple of things. Um, I mean, we're going to go in a couple different places on this, but I do want to hear a little bit from you about uh, HBCU and going to Howard. Um, you chose that. You went to University of California, Davis as an undergrad, go Aggies, uh, Denver Seminary for your MDiv, and then Howard. So, yeah, talk about uh, about the intentionality of, of that for you. Yeah, so, um, so UC Davis and Denver Seminary, um, I, I had excellent life-changing experiences in both degrees um, and both institutions. Um, Obviously, I'm a I'm a brown woman. They were both predominantly white institutions. Um, so there was definitely struggle, struggle. Um, however, I want to be really clear. I loved both of my degree programs there. Um, and and you know how how us brown folk do, us people of color do. We we face it as it comes. We learn to navigate it because we have to, right? Um, my my intention, my conviction, my commitment before I went to Howard has been, I, look, first of all, I wasn't intending on going back to school again. That, that was not my intention. <laughs> By the time, Just sort of happened. Yeah, I, you know, it's been what, how, almost 15 years since I finished my, my MDiv. But when I came back from South Africa, I was so profoundly changed um, in so many just very deep and formative ways um, during my years in South Africa, especially, but even in the years before I went to South Africa. Um, and coming back from South Africa in those first couple of years, it, I just, my, my, not just my calling in terms of what I do, but who I was made to be on the planet in the world. It's not so much about doing for me, but it's about being and who I was made to be on this planet began to crystallize in ways that it hadn't before. And a big part of that is because 
living in Soweto, which is the largest township in South Africa, which by definition, townships were created during apartheid, right? So only Black South Africans live, well, Black folk, mostly South Africans live in townships. Um, and living in that community, which had been so horrifically intergenerationally brutalized, I mean, in some of the most horrific ways that we can't even imagine until you hear someone tell their stories, right? Um, mm -hmm. there was, there were things that I, no one explained to me with words and I didn't have words to even try to explain, but it wasn't until after 10 years of being there, I came home and my brain started to process what my body absorbed living mm -hmm. in the community. Mm -hmm. And what my, one of the things my body absorbed was the feeling of how living in a whole community that has been traumatized as a community over multiple generations that I don't know how else to say this. Forgive me listeners. If this sounds strange, um, anyone who does somatic work will know what I'm talking about, but the only way I could describe it was there's a certain vibration that I have a hard time explaining. Other than that, there's, it's a feeling, it's a feeling of living in a community that has been so intergenerationally traumatized. It, it locks the trauma in. Um, yeah. until we start to do the healing work together as a community. And then it, um, it begins to unlock, right? Um, but what I felt was this constant vibration of, of locked in trauma that wasn't really spoken about, but it was, it was lived out. Um, and once I came back to the U.S., and really process that, I realized that's the same thing I experienced growing up in East Oak. Well, not the same. It's a similar feeling I experienced mm -hmm. growing up in East Oakland. Um, and what, what became crystallized for me was that part of who I'm meant to be in the world is a catalyst for healing, uh, for communities holding that kind of trauma. Um, and particular communities in general, but particularly faith communities, right? So when I came back after two years of being in the U.S., um, I just, I, I just, I kind of had this moment of realization who I was made to be in this world. I need, I need a space to be mentored. I need to be trained more. I need to learn more. Um, Oh shoot, I need to go back to school. <laughs> um, and the moment that that I actually started started thinking about it seriously, um, I knew right away that I the predominantly white institution was not the way I was gonna go. Um, mm. and that was that was a very clear commitment for me. Um, and it's not because I have some vendetta against, we call them PWIs, predominantly white institutions. It's not that. It's because um, predominantly white institutions are by their very nature, they are teaching from the colonizer's perspective. They are centering mm -hmm. the colonizer's perspective. Um, and I've had enough education from the colonizer's perspective. I don't want any more. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I knew if, if, if I'm really going to do this, it's going to have to be, um, at an HBCU. Yeah. Um, and so through my research, I discovered that, um, there are no HBCUs uh, schools of divinity or schools of religion that offer a PhD program, none of them. Um, there's only doctorate programs. Um, and so 
um, that is how I ended up doing a doctorate instead of a PhD. Um, and I chose Howard. And when I tell you that it was, I mean, just fundamentally a totally different experience than doing a de degree program at a predominantly white institution, it was fundamentally at its very foundation different. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'll never forget the first, the, the entire first semester of classes. I, it took me a couple months to even figure out what I was feeling, but it was this feeling of, wait a second, I'm not the person going against the grain all the time. I don't have to hold that. Mm. Mm, like wow. the, the starting point for every class, the starting point is people showed up because they know justice is a part of the gospel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have mm. to explain that. I don't have to defend my dignity as a brown person or as a woman in most cases. Um, because there is a there is a fundamental understanding, and just right. the the experience of um, the humanity, just the humanity that I experienced in the HBCU environment was just profoundly different. Mm -hmm. The understanding, the, the the mutual understanding between faculty and student, and student and student. Um, most of the time, right? There's always going to be exceptions, but most of the time was there's just an understanding that we are living in a constant state of trauma in this country as people of color. Mm. And so we mm. are we are the people on the margins facing way more obstacles than the average white student is facing on a daily basis, right? And there we just we don't have to explain those things. We understand them. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you got to experience that community for yourself where healing could happen. It was a space you entered that was safe for you to just be. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, just being in a space as a marginalized person in a space with marginalized people, that alone has mm -hmm. a healing aspect to it. Um, the whole reason I did my doctorate was so that we as communities can be very intentional about making ourselves healing spaces. So, so yes, in a sense, it was very healing. Um, and man, I would love to see some of the practices <laughs> of, of, you know, intentionally making it healing spaces. I would love to see some of those incorporated, um, mm. um, in, in that kind of academic environment. Um, but, but in general, overall, yeah, it was definitely healing. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay. So gee, a couple based on your first appearance with us and some of the things that are coming up now. Um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about and having participated myself in Jesus and justice, the cohort that you lead and people can find out more about that. Cause it is absolutely amazing. Um, I'm going to ask some hard questions cause I know you're going to give some hard answers. Okay. So in, in some circles, and I'm not telling you things you haven't heard, but in some, some circles in which I run, when topics of race come up, there are some almost like knee jerk responses. Um, like, oh, I don't, I don't even see color. Color means nothing to me. Everybody, everybody's equal in my eyes. We'll come back to that one in a second. Um, but even right now in our country, you know, this word woke, every word gets co-opted after a while, right? And this one certainly has been co-opted, I think now to be seen as some kind of a threat against um, classic education of a white perspective, but whatever. What do we do with, with this now, this idea of wokeness and 
did did we make that up? Who where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is a really important question. Um, I'm gonna start by telling a little story. Um, so in South Africa during apartheid, um, the apartheid government created townships. So they they on the worst land outside every major city, and they forcibly removed all the black South Africans um, and all the colored folks as well. Colored folks went to different areas. Um, the black South Africans were forcibly removed, not compensated for their land at all, um, and forced into residential areas um, that were intentionally kept very poor. Those are the townships, right? Um, now for the next whole bunch of decades throughout apartheid, um, the government made it against the law for, for white folks to go into townships. It was against the law to even step foot in a township. Um, meanwhile, the propaganda that they um, put as news to, to the country is that those are communists in the townships. They are savages. They are doing this, this, and this, and this, and this. And the white folk who were in the positions of power um, and the white folk in, in, in the white communities, they couldn't go see for themselves, nor were they going to, but because they couldn't enter in, right? So the government created a narrative so that they could maintain their power and control. They created the narrative that those are communists and savages. And guess what? The white folk believed it. Mm -hmm. They had to create a narrative so that they could maintain their power and wealth and control. In the same way, for anyone who has not read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, I mentioned this last time I was with you all. It's coming up again. Um, that is a must read. Because what they did in South Africa is still happening right here today in the conversations that you just described. So, so any, any way that marginalized peoples, for the sake of conversation, we'll say people of color, but any marginalized peoples, um, find ways to speak truth to power or find ways to name the harm that is being caused, the brutality, the dehumanizing, every way that we find to name it, to speak out about it, um, and to resist it, the response of the white community is to create a narrative that means they get to stay in control and power. Therefore, the voice of the marginalized folk, or the people of color, are dismissed, they're gaslit, they're discredited, um, they're, they're dehumanized that has a function because they get to stay in power as long as they can do that. Therefore, when you have communities of color talking about being woke, what it means to be woke, um, of course it's gonna get co-opted because the, 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 whole, the whole etymology of, of, of the word and the concept of being woke, it comes from an understanding of empire. Mm. The United States is an empire like the Roman empire in Jesus day was a colonizing empire, right? We are an empire. And part of the way there's, there's also another amazing book that is quite dense, but it is worth the read how to hide an empire, how to hide an empire. So one of the most important ways, also another book, Walter Brueggemann, prophetic imagination, much smaller book, life-changing. If you haven't Love read it, book. Love it. life-changing. Um, the thing about empire is Part of the way that empire maintains its power is, in some sense, they, they keep the people asleep. 
They keep asleep. In other words, the colonizing, the dominating, it's just like the book Cast. The caste system, it is a part of the air that we breathe, so we're not consciously aware of so much of it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once you wake up to the reality of the caste system that is the United States of America, you can never unsee it again. You can never unsee it again. So we've got to wake up. The slumber that comes from being colonized by empire, by being a puppet of empire. And just to be clear, white folk are puppets too. The white folk, are they're, they're controlling the empire, but they're also the puppets of empire. And so a whole lot of white, white community is, is asleep. They don't see the caste system for what it is. Therefore, the term woke is wake up. Mm-hmm. Wake up to what is real. This whole narrative around land of the free and home of the brave that is the United States, it's false. It was never true. It was never true. Right? All men are created equal. First of all, all men. What about women? And second of all, it was all, it was some white men. It wasn't even all white men. It was some Mm -hmm. white men are created equal. So there were always caveats that of people that it didn't apply to, right? Um, And that's part of what we have to wake up to. We've got to wake up to just how much the quote unquote Christian faith that has been propagated and perpetuated, and I would say perpetrated in this nation Mm -hmm. is a a faith. It's what Frederick Douglass calls the slaveholder's religion. Mm -hmm. The Christianity that most of us have inherited is so entrenched in dominating colonizing, dehumanizing ideology and practices, but most of us don't know Mm. because we're asleep. That is where the concept of woke came from. So it it should, those of us, okay, another book, White Rage. Yeah, it's a good one. That's a really important book. Every time the black community in particular in this nation begins to flourish, such as Black Wall Street. And you can see this all throughout history, the entire history of the United States. The white community responds with rage and they destroy it. That's where lynching came from. That's where the Tulsa riots came from. I mean, you can go all the way through history and see that. Um, And so, of course, when we come up with a way to describe what it means to wake up from the slumber that empire imposes on us so that we can see the inequity clearly and resist it, of course, the powers that be and the puppets of empire are going to find a way to create a narrative that discredits it, that dehumanizes it, that mocks it. And that is what we're seeing in much of evangelical America, a total mockery of people on the margins finding language to resist and speak truth to the dehumanizing um, practices and ideologies that we suffer under every day. Yeah, that's that's good. Hey, um, your timeout, your uh, audio <laughs> just changed. Like it's like your it sounds like your mic switched or something. I just fixed it. Okay, good, good. Um, it won't be a problem. I just didn't want that going on, so that's good forever. Um, wow. Okay, so lots of places to go here. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Joy for a bit. I 
as you're talking, Gigi, I keep thinking back to that image really that I feel like you created of a small child watching the lynching in the context of what you just shared with white rage, with Christianity in America being a slaveholder's religion. Viscerally speaking, I imagine that child, and this goes for all of us, the baby that's being held as the mom's walking down the street, feeling the recoil, whatever it is, however we were culturalized with um, racism, I feel like it goes to this place, like biologically speaking, like if I don't continue this, then I'm going to be out of the tribe. Like it's my life or your life literally pitted against each other. That's just so huge and massive. Like I feel overwhelmed at the thought of where do we go from there? Like, I, I, do you have any answers, hope, like you, you keep mentioning that healing is possible, but my reaction, the sense I'm having as they're sharing is kind of an overwhelm. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because if you're feeling that right now, I can promise you that a lot of other people are feeling that regularly. Um, so, so two things that I would, I would suggest and, and say to that, um, number one, We've got to recover relationships with our bodies, mm-hmm. all of us. In the context of your question in particular, um, my, my white-bodied siblings, we've got to recover relationship with our bodies. The impulse to dominate, the impulse to dismiss, the impulse to interrupt and talk over, the impulse to white knuckle ways to keep power that comes from the body. Mm -hmm. It comes from the body. Um, When we begin to tap back in to our physical bodies and we start listening to the signals it's been giving us all along, we will find out what the belief systems are that are being held in our bodies. Mm. For example, for example, and this is a lot of the healing work that I do, right? Um, getting to the roots of belief systems, because when you can shift the belief system, it shifts um, thoughts and it shifts behavior. It shifts worldview. It, it shifts your whole life, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. One belief that I think is core in our, our white-bodied communities is I am only safe if I'm in control. I'm only safe if I'm in control. When we slow down and we we tap in to the signals that our body is giving us, we listen to it, we feel it, we get curious about it with no judgment. Mm -hmm. There's no wrong feeling in the body. There is just feeling in the body. It is telling you something. It is telling you something. When us who are a white-bodied sibling are sitting across from a melanated body and that melanated body is saying something that makes us really uncomfortable. What is the impulse that comes up? Often it's to walk away. Sometimes it's to fight. Sometimes we freeze because we don't want to say the wrong thing. Guess what? Those are all trauma responses. Mm -hmm. Those are all trauma responses and they are grounded in I am not safe unless I am in control. 
Therefore, if I can't control you, I'm not safe. That, that come, being able to shift that comes from number one, getting in, back in touch with our bodies, listening to the signals that it gives. The second thing, it also comes from relationships. So we've got to be in at least a couple of quality relationships with another human being that is also seeking to decolonize, preferably a whole community. Let me be clear, preferably a whole community. Um, however, mm -hmm. for a lot of people, they haven't found that yet. Um, that's why I created Jesus and Justice, by the way. We are a community um, for that purpose, um, healing and decolonizing and, and really bringing change. But relationships. So what we know from neuroscience, interpersonal neurobiology, is that our brains can literally rewire when we're in relationships that we feel safe. Mm -hmm. We can challenge each other. We can redirect each other. We can embrace each other in our moments of mess. We've got to recover relationship with our bodies and then being in relationship, quality relationship with each other where we don't experience judgment, um, but that we're actively doing the work of decolonizing. Does that help your question? It's, yeah, it's creating um, just a really strong desire within me. So I'm grateful on a really personal level for you sharing both of those things and just, yeah, I mean, being in the discomfort and, and feeling it and allowing it. Yes. Yes. Accepting it. Yes. So not being afraid of discomfort or, or I mm -hmm. should say, um, learning to not run from discomfort. Mm -hmm. And if I can just say to all of us, but in this moment, particularly to my, my white body siblings, there is so much hope. <laughs> there is so much possibility for change. If you are willing to walk the journey, there is so much possibility for change. And, and for, for our white communities, you know, again, I'm using the word we, it's not because I'm confused about my brownness. Those of us who are white, mm -hmm. who are listening in, it's our communities that have the power to, to move and shift things. And this right here, family, is why healing is resistance. Mm. Healing is resistance. When you do the work to begin to heal that trauma response that says run or fight or freeze, you heal that, all of a sudden you become not just an ally, you become an accomplice. You become a co-conspirator mm -hmm. that actually changes things. That's why healing is resistance. And what you mentioned about just rejection from the tribe, oh, my sister, my brother, my siblings out there, that is, I believe, one of the greatest travesties of what evangelicalism has become. Mm -hmm. We have, be, our signature has become exclusion. We control people by the threat of rejection. Yep. And, you know, let me say this. This became really critical part of my, my doctoral thesis. 
there, there, there is a study um, that has scientifically concluded that human beings need a sense of belonging in the same way, it, talking about our brains, in the same way that we need water, air, and food. Mm. And we know that because the pain of feeling not belonging and not welcome, it activates some of the same neural pathways that being hungry and being thirsty activates. And what the study also found is that human beings will pursue the, the drive to alleviate the feeling of hunger and thirst and the need for air is equal to the drive to find a place to belong or to alleviate the feeling of not belonging. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that might be the answer to your question earlier. Yeah. That is why the yeah. drive to not lose the sense of belonging, to not lose community, or as you put it, tribe, um, is so strong because it is it is a fundamental human need. A sense of belonging is a fundamental human need. And e the, what evangelicalism has become is we have weaponized that. Yep. If you don't live in a way that checks this box, checks this box and this box and this box and this box and believes only this and only this, and there's only one right answer to any of this, then you don't belong. Mm -hmm. Conditions, conditional belonging, the, the performance-based belonging. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and it is the antithesis of the incarnation. It is the antithesis of who God in the flesh showed us who God is. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and the antithesis of what you just shared. We need we need the relationships where we can be real and authentic and vulnerable. And if that's not happening, then the healing isn't happening either. That's exactly right. No, it's it's actually having the opposite effect. I mean, it's it's creating right. more trauma. And you know, trauma is cumulative. And so, you know, it, it that that's that's the part where I, I am I'm very encouraged because I am seeing culture at large becoming more trauma aware, which is great. And yet the systems, the world systems beyond beyond race, the world systems in play, while we have a recognition and acceptance of trying to understand trauma, our systems are creating more trauma. Absolutely. And just to come full circle, this is why I said in the very beginning that even though our faith communities have the potential and, and calling to be such healing spaces, sadly, so often they're, they're deepening the trauma. They're not healing it. They're deepening it. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, we've experienced that. I, I've experienced it in community where, you know, you set out with, I was almost going to use a strong word like mandate, but that, that would, that wouldn't work, but you start out with an ideal of authenticity. <laughs> And then when authenticity actually gets real, people run. And they run because they're finally being seen in the light and they're ashamed or they're threatened or they're, you know, their, their internal systems are telling them, if people know the truth about me, I will be rejected. 
And so they reject themselves mm -hmm. and they flee the tension of authenticity. Right. And look for and, and the thing better is, coffee at coffee break or better childcare instead of, uh, you know what, that's not going to solve this. <laughs> Sorry, that was. Yeah, a little... that's right. No, that that's that's exactly right. Um, unfortunately, you know, when we're talking about systems and right now I'm speaking specifically about faith communities. Most of our faith communities have modeled their systems on systems that colonize and dominate. Mm. We, we've modeled it based on that. And so we have capitalized on, you just named shame. Shame is a core yeah. way that empire controls people. Shame. Because we're not rooted in the truth of who we are, right? We live in a racial hierarchy. And the only way that a racial hierarchy could be thriving for 400 years is if all of us on some level or another have internalized where the system says we belong in the hierarchy. That mm -hmm. lives in our bodies. Culture lives in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Culture lives in our bodies. And so we have internalized this. Yeah. We don't have a lot of practice, especially even in our own individual childhoods, of that kind of authenticity and attachment coinciding. Ooh, you just said attachment. Ooh, Jesus. Yep. She said attachment. <laughs> that's that's a I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> no, that's that's a key part of my dissertation as well, because um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, trust-based relational intervention, TBRI. Yeah. That was designed mm -hmm. for for beautiful children like mine who have been adopted or in foster care or whatnot and have profound mm -hmm. attachment trauma. But there's a whole section in my mm -hmm. dissertation that talks about attachment through the lens of race. You mm -hmm. look at the indigenous community, you look at the enslaved community, um, the, the black enslaved community in this country, and you're talking about generations and generations repeatedly of children being removed from their families and their primary caretaker. Mm -hmm. And so the trauma of that is beyond what we can even put into beyond. words. But the mm -hmm. thing is, when we create community with the intention to heal that, it is a game changer. It is a game changer because it means we're centering building trust. We're not centering following rules. Right. We're centering building trust, trust-based relational intervention. That is how those, many of those kids heal. It is trust-based relational intervention. So we have to center relationship first, human dignity first. No one's mm -hmm. feelings about something are wrong. Their opinions might be, but their feelings aren't. Feelings are just an indicator. What we want to do is we validate someone's feelings, and then we get curious about what's driving the feelings because there's a belief under there. Mm -hmm. That's how we shift, right? But the only way you can do that is when someone feels safe. Right. You got to, we have to build communities that center around human dignity and building relationship. So getting back to another hard question, perhaps. Um, some of my white brothers and sisters would say that some of the movements we're seeing toward racial reconciliation, they were considered to be a flip of persecution. 
Yeah. So it's not it's not safe for me when I'm being called a racist because I'm not a racist. I don't see color. Color doesn't matter to me. Or yeah. I, I mean, I could go on and on with the examples of that, right? Um, and ultimately, I mean, I'm just seeing that lead to more and more hatred or or even division. Yeah, division. And I mean, part of this sorry human condition is that we're kind of wired for there to have to be an other, right? I mean, if if there's if there's anything to compete for, especially in a scarcity mindset, then you have to make something less than human to attack it to get something that you feel you need for your survival. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Which, which go ahead. No, I, I, yeah, no, keep going. Which is exactly why the response when the commitment is to being in control, because I'm only safe if I'm in control. If the commitment is to being in control and maintaining power, then the only solution is to dehumanize. Hmm. And so that's what the, like you said, the knee jerk, the default reaction, that's what it's going to be. Right. Um, and really a, a key part of the work. And, and this, I can say for my own story, when I moved to South Africa, I was 31. I had been a Brown woman for 31 years on the front lines, Brown enough to be heckled and followed and um, mocked and threatened by the KKK Brown enough. But when I got to Soweto, South Africa, I was viewed as totally white. And it took me two years to realize that if I was going to, if, if I, if I had any hope of building relationships in my community, being a neighbor and being a community member, um, I had to accept that I was viewed as white. It took me two years to figure out that explaining over and over, I'm not white. I'm not white. My dad's Brazilian. I grew up here, blah, 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 blah. I just made it all about me. I just made the whole conversation about me because I'm trying to get you to see me how I see me. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that is what the white bodied community tends to do. We need you to see me how I see me, right? Um, I, I had to learn how to navigate a racially polarized environment as a white person. Um, and one of the things that was absolutely imperative was the moment that I came to the realization that I have to accept this. I have to accept my whiteness, even though I am white, but in this context I am. And this context is traumatized by people who look like me. Mm -hmm. So I have to accept my whiteness. And guess what? I ain't never been white a day in my life. So I don't know how to do this. <laughs> so which means I, I had to embrace, I am going to walk into spaces and I'm going to say the wrong thing because I've never been white before. I, I'm going to walk into spaces and um, not follow a cultural norm that I don't know about, or, or I'm not going to know this or that or the other. And and that feeling of needing to always be someone who knows, or that feeling of needing to be the white person who's different than all the other white people. I'm not like all the others. Right. Well, for me, I mean, that was true because I never been white. Right. But, but that is true for the white body community in general. One of the key places we have to start for us in the white community is, um, Making peace with the reality 
that I am white. There are a lot of things I'm not going to see and I'm not going to understand because I am looking at society from the top down. The rest of the world is looking at society from the bottom up. So there's a whole lot that I don't see and I don't understand. And I'm going to embrace that. Instead of rejecting it, instead Mm -hmm. of needing to justify myself, instead of needing to defend how I'm not like all the other white people, instead of needing to show that I know all these different things about white supremacy and I can name all these different authors and I can cite, no. Enter the space like, in a sense, enter the space like a child to be taught. Like when, when we are so rooted in the truth of our identity, the truth of our identity being, I am an image bearer. I am made in the image of creator. And nothing I do or say or don't do or get wrong or get right can change that. Mm-hmm. Nothing can change that. No amount of rejection or criticism. I am made in the image of God. My value and my worth does not depend on someone else's opinion of me. When we get more rooted in that, we can stand in the understanding of the limitation of our whiteness and be okay with it. Right. That is when we no longer need to hold on to power. Yeah. That is when we're not driven by fear anymore. Yeah, we're coming from a place of something that can't be taken away, so... And that is, that is the truth. I'll tell you what. One of the only ways that empire can continue, and remember, empire is all about power, domination, control, right? The only way, em- empire depends on us being disconnected from our bodies mm-hmm. because at our core, our bodies will bear witness to what is true. That's right. Our bodies will bear witness to the truth of our worth and our wholeness. It will also bear witness to the pain and the trauma of being dehumanized, right? But empire depends on us disconnecting from our bodies, which is why most of the Western world is. Yeah, that's really that's really good insight. Uh, I've been doing some trauma work over the last number of months, and the you know the Anglo-Saxon in me, with a Protestant work ethic and a child of manifest destiny, my wiring is toward okay, the how and the what. How do I do this, and what do I need to know? Which which are the last things to look at, you know, it, it really boils down to a who question. It's a who element, not just a what and a how you can kill yourself over what and how's and never make any progress. Um, but if you address the who piece of this, you know, then, then real change can start to happen. And and that's what makes healthy communities, right? That's, yes. that's what we're trying to get to. So I think that's one of the big barriers in our historically white community um, that we think there's a way to use intellect 
and hard work that will resolve certain things. And it, that's just missing the most important part of the equation. And then we get frustrated. And then we, we, I'm again, I'm using the Royal we here. Uh, yeah. We get to a place of feeling attacked and now the fight is back on. That's right. How and dare you, know, you call me a racist? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hear that frequently. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of thoughts. Um, one is um, there's a really important distinction here that we need to make. Uh, and that is the difference between racism and prejudice. Mm, good. This is, this is pivotal, especially for the white, white community to understand. Um, so what is racism? Racism is prejudice plus power. Racism does not equal prejudice. Racism is prejudice plus power. And the reason this is, this is absolutely imperative distinction to understand is because someone, a group of people who are in the positions of power, who hold prejudice about a particular people, because they hold the power, they have the ability to cause immeasurable suffering to the people that they are prejudiced against. A group of people that does not have the power can potentially have equal prejudice, but they don't have the power to unleash anywhere near the same magnitude of suffering. Mm -hmm. so, so, so we can't actually say, um, you know, that group over there is being racist too, right? right? There's a difference between racism and prejudice. Um, so, so the, the impact of someone with power, a group of people with power versus a group of people with little or no power, totally different, totally different. The second thing I, I haven't responded to you in your question around this whole idea of colorblindness. I don't see color. Um, that is, this might make some people uncomfortable. No, please do. <laughs> that, that is dehumanizing. Yes. It's insulting. It is insulting, it is offensive, it is dehumanizing. Um, number one, I am a brown woman. My brownness is a part of who I am. I don't want you to look at me and not see color. This is a part of, this, is, this reflects my heritage. This reflects who I am. And, and in this current era of racial hierarchy, it literally determines so much of my life. And this is what I'm saying is not just my own experience. There is, I mean, study after study, after study, after study, after study on this, on, you know, who gets jobs and who doesn't, who um, is able to buy a house or rent an apartment and who is turned down, um, who is, you know, th there's layers and layers and layers of this kind of discrimination. So um, my, my skin color, because the whole idea of race is built around, um, around physical appearance. That means my physical appearance in this regard, um, for you to tell me that you don't see it means you are dismissing a huge portion of my life's experience. And furthermore, God was very intentional to put himself in a brown body. I mean that we if if we if we refuse to acknowledge that about Jesus and his social location, we will miss half the gospel. 
-hmm. <laughs> we will miss half the gospel. So it's it's dehumanizing and it's dismissive and and it is utterly false. It is it, it is presented at, with an air of nobility, like I'm noble because I, I'm more spiritual than that. I'm more spiritual than seeing color. Oh God, I think you missed the spirit altogether. With respect, <laughs> truly, the spirit's in my brownness. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And 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 the other thing about this that is that is foundational too is is the white-bodied community part of whiteness. First of all, it's a social construct, right? It's it's a political social construct. Um, it was created in response to blackness to create the dichotomy so that one can have power and one cannot, right? But the whole narrative around race is that everything that's not white has a culture, has a heritage, but whiteness doesn't. So whiteness mm -hmm. doesn't say I'm Irish, I'm German, I'm this, or my heritage is uh, Swedish. Right. No, because white, whiteness doesn't, whiteness is considered the pervasive normative standard. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that bugs me so much because I mean it's still normal practice. You're filling out some informational form. Yep. Of course, now they give mm -hmm. you the prefer not to answer option, but it's not German, Irish, French, uh, Swedish. It's white. Right? <laughs> you know, it's and that is a way to dominate. Yeah. That is a way that. White community, and by the way, can we just talk about how subjective race is? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Italians were considered not white. Yeah, right. So that there was some group of people to to discriminate against and keep on the bottom, right? Yeah. T today they're they're considered entirely white. I'm I'm viewed as as colored, which is brown in the cities of South Africa, but I'm viewed as white in the townships. Right. There are some places that I go in the United States where um, people are like, it's just assumed clearly she's half black. Mm. Right. And there are other places that I go and people are like, oh, she's she's definitely Hispanic. She didn't have any black in her um, or mm. other places where I mean, I've had people from um, from all different parts of the world think that I'm one of them, which mm. which actually is beautiful. Yeah. Um, but but the part of race that is entirely subjective, it. it it speaks to how much of a farce the whole thing is. Yeah. You can be one race over here and a totally different race over here. And what race you are viewed as determines your whole life. Everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to say I don't see color is, is asinine. It's, it's false. It is not spiritual. Yeah, that's good. Good word. Thank you for that. Well, Gigi, again, you know, we're into this sometime. I think we just need to make you a regular guest on the Communitas podcast. Please. <laughs> There's I'd be just honored. so much good stuff here. Um, but as we wrap this one up and anticipate having you back again, uh, I would love it if you could leave us, and you gave us some hope earlier, but give us a little bit of a, a word of hope. I mean, you, you did all of this study for the greater good of the kingdom. 
Um, So leave us with a word of hope and then let people know how to get in touch with you. We'll put that all in the show notes as well and the books you referenced and and those things. But Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. um, Let me start with, with just the logistical things and then I'll, I'll end with the word of hope. Um, So logistics, you can find me on Facebook. So um, there's a public page called Jesus and justice. You can follow. Um, Not the members only page. I'll tell you about that in a second. Just the Jesus and justice page. That's public. You can follow that. Um, you can also find me, um, on Instagram, Jesus and justice. Um, you can go to my website, ggonline.org and the course that we were just talking about that, that Jeff has been a part of, um, the life changing course, 10 weeks long. We actually have a cohort coming up. We're starting on July 17th and we still have spots open. So if you are interested, I would love to hear from you. Um, you can go to ggonline.org slash Jesus and justice course. ggonline.org slash Jesus and justice course. And that will have a bunch of more details about the course and um, a button to, to tap to get in touch with me about it. Um, a word of hope to leave you with. You know, I think what comes up for me right now um, is taking us again back to Genesis 1. Um, And so many of us have been taught to understand our identity as being sinful nature. Mm. And I want to challenge that. Genesis 1 came before that ever came into the picture. Your, my, our core identity is made in the image of the creator. We're made in God's image. And remember, God only exists in community. God only exists in the Trinity. He only exists in community. We were literally designed for community. And the Trinity shows us that it is possible to be interdependent, to not have to lord power over any other, but to be in harmony, in equality, in relationship where we are intertwined, we are different and equal. We're made in that image. You're made in that image. You're made to exercise dominion in a way that causes the led things, the things being led to flourish. That's what the Hebrew word means in Genesis one. It's not just leadership. It's leading and influencing in a way that causes the things being led to flourish. That's what we were made for. Mm. We were made for that. We were designed for community. Community where where dignity is honored in every way. That's the Trinity. You, You are cherished and you are treasured. Go into the world and embody that to the rest of the world. Amen. Amen.
Gigi, I'm just, oh man, you're just the best. Love you, friend. Love you dearly, G. It's so good to be with you. And thank you, Joy, for for just your presence as well. Thank you for pouring into us. It's such a joy. I love you guys. And I will look forward to being back. Yeah, we will do it again. We will do it again. I do highly recommend uh, to those listening that Jesus and Justice is just, it's outstanding. It will rock your world. It will change you. It will make you a better person. Uh, It will help you love better uh, yourself and others. So um, I encourage people to seek that out and check it out. So you've been listening to another episode of the Communitas podcast. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do like it. Uh, We're available on all available streaming platforms, wherever you get your podcast material, you will find us there, the Communitas podcast. And if you're liking what you're hearing, subscribe. And every couple of weeks, you'll get a message telling you there's another episode. Uh, So please do that and pass it on to friends and family as well. Uh, Gigi, thank you again. And we will see you all on the next episode of the Communitas Podcast. Go in peace. Deuces. Deuces.